All right, so we're in Yaakov chapter 5. Let's read this just one more time. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, let me underscore this, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Or sins, plural. Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, would you teach us now and give us understanding and insight to your word? There are some things just at the end of this letter that are difficult for us. And I just pray that we will have resolution and understanding in our hearts as you reveal truth. Help us to understand and to know again your grace and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. He had just been dropped off again at the place where he had spent nearly every day, perhaps, of his life, at least as long as he could remember. He knew the city well, but he had never known, would never know what it was like to walk its streets, or to leap, or to run. The gate that was beautiful to others just served to remind him that he was crippled, a lame beggar. And so he sat there, hand up, head bowed, in the afternoon heat. And I wonder if he prayed. I wonder how often he prayed. As he sat there, another two men going up to the temple at the time of prayer uh, were walking by him. He recognized, since that they were there, and, and without looking up, he just raised up his hand and reflexively began to beg alms of them. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 4, it says that Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Such is the model of praise in the last days. When was the last time you entered church walking and leaping and praising God? I mean, we'd think, let's get a couple elders on that guy real quick. It's a little strange what's going on here. How much more often does it seem that people have 
hands up and heads bowed, not so much in humility, but with beggarly indifference. John 17 verse 1 tells us that Jesus lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Now that's the look of a confident son. The beggar now walking and leaping and praising God, that's the look of someone who recognizes His healing and who knows that God is God. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't bow in humility when we pray. Just that... We already tend to have an attitude toward the earth. An attitude toward the terra firma, if you will. We are naturally inclined, I believe, to look downward and earthward. In attitude, if not in posture. What do you mean, Rick? I'm saying that I think we have a tendency, all of us, to focus more on the here and now than just about anything else. How I feel today, in this hour, in this moment. And we do that whenever we bemoan the past, whenever we complain about our current circumstances, or whenever we just don't understand what God's doing right now. Well, we're earthly focused. We're looking down. Anytime we say, how, how could He let this happen to me? Oh, why don't you do something? I don't understand how God won't answer my prayers. Heads down. Heads down. We may even have hands up. But like the beggar, we're stuck in a place. Listen, Yaakov finishes out this letter with his head up. He is focusing forward. How do I know? Look again at verse 7. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8, For the coming of the Lord is near. In verse 9, The judge is standing right at the door. Faith looks up. Faith focuses forward. The prayer offered in faith is a prayer that trusts that God is going to do everything that He said He would do. Faith takes Jesus at His word. Faith treads lightly on this earth, trusting in and walking in the comforting company of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God has all things well in hand. The Spirit who reminds us of Christ and of the glorious hope to come, looking forward, looking forward. See, that helps us to pray by faith, because faith looks up. Now, last week we began looking at and talking about prayer and praise in the last days. Again, with verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Prosuchiomai. And is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Solo. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We talked about this last week. The singer who sorrows, And the sufferer who prosuchomize, that is, he speaks aloud unto God. And the sick who calls on the elders to come pray over them and anoint them with oil. And then he says in verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And that first half of verse 15 has caused more problems for people in churches because they're not taking it in faith. We hear that and we say, well, 
If the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and I pray in faith and the one who is sick is not restored, then is the problem with my faith? Or is the problem with the Lord not wanting to do what I asked Him to do? What's going on here? And my friends, if you've ever struggled with that verse, you're not alone. And you're not the first. And you probably won't be the last. We looked at this again last week. Let me bring this back to mind. That he says the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Restore is sozo. It's save. He will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Raise him up is a gyro, which can be raising out of bed or raising from the dead. It goes either way. Sozo could be made, made well or saved. Just depends on the context. It could be either one. Whether he raises us up from the bed or raises us up from the dead, faith understands, please hear this, it is his prerogative. It's his call. Well, you just say that because you don't have enough faith. Well, then that puts all the emphasis on me, doesn't it? I thought the emphasis was supposed to be on Jesus Christ. I thought the issue was His power and His grace. I recall Him being called Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. Whether God heals us as we desire right now for well-being in this life, or heals us by raising us up from the dead for eternity in the life to come, it is His prerogative. Either way, the prayer offered in faith looks up, looks forward. Trust in the Lord for what He's doing. And F.B. Meyer said, The greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, it's unoffered prayer. When is prayer unoffered? When we don't believe that He's listening anymore. So we pray by faith. We know God's concern is far greater than our immediate or temporary health and well-being. God's concern is always first and foremost for eternal salvation. We have a very limited view of healing. God has an eternal view of healing. God's desire is always that we have a forever life with Him. That's what He's working on. That's His concern. That is a number one with the Lord. And by the way, that is Yaakov's assertion at the end of his letter. How do you know that? Well, look at verse 15 continuing. He says, And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If he's committed sins. Now, why do you have to mess with being sick? Why do you have to pull sin into sickness? What are you doing, Yaakov? Mixing the two together. Hey, we've talked about the singer and the sufferer and the sick. Well, this morning, number four on our list, continuing from last week, is the sinner. The sinner. The connection between sin and sickness ought to be well known to us, well understood. In the world in which we live, it is not. You ever heard of the Ebers papyrus? I found this really interesting. This was a papyrus that was discovered, a medical manual from ancient Egypt, 1500 B.C. 
And reading through what this medical manual uh, prescribes, hundreds of prescriptions for disease are found in the Ebers papyrus. To cure baldness, I found this one uh, intriguing. (laughs) Apply a mixture of six fats. Horse fat, hippo fat, crocodile fat, cat fat, snake fat, and wild goat fat. And this is supposed to cure baldness, and all it did was shine up the old chrome dome. (laughs) The Ebers papyrus, they believed and taught in this medical manual, cutting edge 1500 BC, that pus promoted healing. Don't you just love the word pus? So for a splinter, it prescribed that you would apply a salve of worm blood and donkey dung. That would cause any child not to play with wood. No. Dung is loaded with tetanus spores. And so what began to happen was a simple splinter resulted in gruesome death from lockjaw. You know what's amazing is all the way until the late 1800s, doctors agreed that pus was a healing agent. So they felt if they could cause pus, this was a good thing. That was to the late 1800s. If you want to read more about this, I would encourage you to pick up a book. It's by Macmillan and Stern called None of These Diseases. And it's absolutely fascinating for a read. What mankind and medicine still have yet to come to grips with is this. Listen, the inseparable relationship between body and spirit. And between disease, physical disease, and sin. That the two are inseparable. The Bible is clear. Now, you've got to stay with me on this. I don't mean anyone to be offended or upset at what I'm about to say, but listen carefully. Where all disease is concerned, sin is the pathogen. Sin is the cause. Sin is the root of all disease, from conjunctivitis to arthritis to diverticulitis. Sin is the root. From the common cold to Crohn's disease to cancer. Sin is the root. Sin is the cause. People do not like to hear that because they think, how can you say to this sick individual, your sin is making you sick? Well, that's not what I'm saying precisely. I'm saying that sin is the root of it all. That the bottom line is none of us would ever get sick if not for sin. There wouldn't be disease in the world if not for sin. And the proof of this is that the best medicine in the world cannot cure death. It just keeps happening. I've told you before, look up the statistics. It's intense. In Romans 5.12, Paul said, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men, because all sinned. And he went on to say in Romans 5.14, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. doesn't matter what your sin is. If you sin, you die. And so we die. Yaakov said in chapter 1 verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Disease has its root and its root is sin. And that is God's great concern. We look at the physical. Heal the disease. Heal the sick. Lord, heal me of this ailment. And he's saying, 
you know, I really want to take care of that, but, but let's deal with sin first. Let's heal the root problem. Let's go to the heart of the issue. By the way, did you know that God gave Israel an out from disease? In Exodus 15.26, Moses said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in His sight, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. I am the Lord your healer, Yahweh Rapha. I'm not going to give you any of the ancient Egyptian diseases. In other words, throw away the Ebers papyrus. And just do what I tell you to do, the Lord says. And I won't put any of the disease on you. And in many cases, the Jewish people throughout history, across the ages, by following kosher laws, have avoided much of the illness that has plagued the world. You know, the Black Plague of Europe, 1347 to 1351, there was one group of people in Europe that was not dying like everybody else was dying of the Black Plague. And it was the Jews. Because they were obeying kosher law. And of course, they were blamed for it. They were blamed for the Black Plague because they were healthy when everyone else was sick, so it must be that dark magic of the Jews causing all this death. No, they were simply doing what God said to do. None of these diseases... Now you might say to me, yeah, but Rick, Jewish people still die. I've seen, I've seen the cemeteries in Israel. <laughs> Jewish people still go to the grave. Yes, they do. In fact, one Jew in particular died, not because of his own sin, but because he bore all of our sins. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 5, which we seem to have referred to a lot lately. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, please hear this, we are healed. By His scourging, we are healed. Well, what do you want us to hear? Listen. Please don't diminish divine healing to earthly ailments. By his healing, we are, by his scourging, we are healed. Therefore, if I've got this sickness and I pray right, I should be immediately healed. Don't limit the healing of God to temporary ailments. Even to ailments that would bring death. The blood work of Jesus Christ on the cross is far bigger than curing the common cold or even the most uncommon cancer. The blood of Christ is bigger than that. The healing of God is bigger than that. Far greater. Now we're talking about a faith that looks up, right? It is not about us getting ourselves healthy and and feeling good right now. It is bigger than that. What did Jesus say? When the ceiling tiles began to come down. And the man was lowered before him in the house. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. First thing out of Jesus' mouth and seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. First thing he says. Guy's paralyzed. What are you talking about? His sins. I love the commentators who say, well, clearly he was sinning when he fell off that roof and broke his legs. (laughs) Clearly the result of the paralysis... Well, hey, I can tell you, yes, his paralysis came from sin. 
All paralysis comes from sin. All disease comes from sin. And the heart of the Lord always is the better healing, the bigger healing, the more important healing, and that is healing from our sin. And so he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the paralysis. Deals with the problem first, because you don't heal someone of their paralysis and leave their sin in place. Healed of his sin, the man then could be healed of his paralysis. Uh, Sick people may be seeking restored legs or revived cells or the removal of disease, but God sees sin at the root of it all. Now some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? (laughs) Imagine the reaction of these guys. Excuse me? Was I talking to you? Did I say that out loud? And then Jesus says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? I can tell you which one is easier. Pick up your pallet and walk. And that's a no-brainer for God. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Egyro, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. True healing always begins, must begin in the spirit of a person. Before body is dealt with. Back in Yaakov chapter 5 verse 16, Therefore, he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Since sin is the pathogen, the antidote is administered by confession. Confession. I always knew we would get to this verse in James. Confession. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You know we have a problem in the church. And it's the idea of sweeping sin under the carpet. It's cheap grace. And saying, yeah, I, got, I have this sin, but oh well. It's okay. I mean, shouldn't have done this, but oh my. Please forgive me, God. And then we go on as if nothing has changed. And I think, my opinion, one of the least practiced uh, attitudes in Christianity today, today is confession. Confession. He who confesses and forsakes his transgressions We'll find compassion. But in the church, what we do is we go, well, there's a sin issue here, and it's a little embarrassing, and we really don't want to talk about it, so let's sweep it under the rug and ignore it. Instead of confessing it, so it can be dealt with. John said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that says about confession? We don't have to fear it anymore. 
Because we already have the promise. Confess your sin, and He is faithful to forgive. It's marvelous. I remember years ago, I don't know if I've ever told you the story. I had just started in youth ministry. I was about a week or two in. We had moved up to Federal Way, Washington at the time. I was working at a small church there. And I was trying to set up things in our home and, and our, our uh, getting auto insurance. I got on the phone and I called a bunch of places. Have I told you all this? you remember the story? And I called one place. Uh, I, I can't remember which one it was. But I'm just calling around trying to get auto quotes. And then I, I, I forgot about it. Got the insurance company one. I got the auto quote. Fine. Went to an elders meeting a week later. And sat down, and the elders were all looking at me. Like, I'm like, what's wrong? I'm, I should, I'm in the honeymoon period here, guys. And you're not looking at me that way, you know. And they slid a piece of paper across the table, and they said, we have it from a woman who attends our congregation, who you called her company for auto insurance, and you cussed out the person on the phone. And here's the sheet of paper that, that the agent wrote down your name, and here's what you said. And I'm looking at him going... I'm like, first of all, I don't even know what that word means. And there was a woman in the church who was highly offended because another agent in her company had taken this phone call, supposedly from me, and I had gone off on the phone yelling and shouting and cursing. And I'm I'm sitting there going, this cannot be true. I didn't do that. And then you know what you do in your own brain? You start questioning yourself. Did I? <laughs> Did I just, you know, have a mental break and I don't remember having done this 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 thing? And, and, I, and I, I talked with the elders about it. I said, I, I will follow up with her and I'll talk with her and I'll call the insurance company. And of course, I'm just shaking in my boots because I've just started in this ministry thing and I'm trying to look holy. I know the truth, but they don't yet. And now it's out. And I, I called the company and I talked to the to the lady who went to our church and, and she said, well, this, this agent is absolutely convinced it was you. And so I said, well, can I talk to her and put me on the phone with her? And, and she said, no, I'm sure it was you. And I said, well, how many calls do you take a day? And she said, well, that's what I do all day long. I said, was it possible you confused me with someone else? And, and she goes, no, it was you. And I said, well, I apologize. I didn't do it, <laughs> but, but I apologize. And, and I learned something in that moment that I carry with me for years after that, and often told teenagers about this story, that you know what, the reality is when you know you're going to be forgiven, you can confess anything. I told her on the phone that day, and this woman I was talking to was not a Christian. The woman, obviously, who went to our church was, and she was upset because she had been trying so hard to be a good witness. But I told this girl on the phone, I said, listen, I'm a Christian, and... We believe in forgiveness. So I said, I, I do apologize that this happened. I said, I still don't think it was, I can't imagine that it was me because I don't talk like that. But even if it was, we believe in forgiveness. And so I said, would, would you forgive me? And she said, yeah. Click, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it was all fine and kind of, you know, got forgotten. But, but after that, I just I thought about that and, and have over the years that, We have a freedom as followers of Jesus that the world does not have. See, the world says confess your sins to one another and we may forgive you. (laughs) 
unless it's bad enough that we feel like, no, we really need to punish you a while longer. That's, that's the attitude of humanity. You don't know, if you confess, you don't know if you're going to be forgiven and restored. You have no guarantee that you may be kicked out and taken to trial and thrown into court. And, I mean, the whole thing. That's our world, but our Jesus says, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. You will be forgiven. So why in the church, when we understand that forgiveness is so free, why are we so afraid to do it? What does it take for Christians to begin to confess our sins so that we can be freed from it. I'll tell you what it takes. i got to tell you another story here, though. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Acts 19, 11, which tells us, and it's the context once again of healing. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. That is so cool. Someone get me a handkerchief. Let's try this. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's, that's really impressive. And then it says in verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Trying to get in on the action here. Seven sons of one Sceva. So you can say these were skeevy little guys. A Jewish uh, chief priest, seven sons were doing this. And the evil spirit recognized, or answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I love this story. (laughs) And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus, or and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And watch this, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. What does it take to bring about confession? And I'll tell you what it takes when the fear of the Lord overcomes the fear of man. When I fear man, I will not confess. I will keep it to me. But when I fear the Lord, I can confess anything and be healed and be restored. As long as I'm concerned with what people think, yes, confession is hard. And that's why even in the church, confession is difficult because we fear what other people might think of us if we actually own up to the truth. Man, when I realize the holiness of God and the compassion of God, when I fear Him, again, it does not matter what anybody else thinks. My only concern is what does Jesus think? And he's already told me, I know what your sin is. Confess it. Let's get it out. You know what confession is? Confession is spiritual dialysis. It functions to get the impurity and the toxicity of sin out of our systems, allowing then the influx of the pure and cleansing blood of Jesus. God knows we need to confess. We need to get the stuff out. Because we hold on to it. We hide it away. We tuck it in. We think we're fooling everybody. 
And maybe we are. Maybe we are a fool in the church. Maybe we're fooling the pastors and the elders and our fellow Christians. We have them all thinking we live one way when we live another. Maybe we think we've got everybody over a barrel. God knows exactly what's going on. Well, if God knows what's going on, why do I have to confess? Because He knows that you need it. You've got to get it out. You need the dialysis. And Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19, Man, we were redeemed with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation 1.5, John wrote, He loves us and releases us from our sins by His blood. So there's the promise. So when Yaakov says... Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Clearly, the healing that matters is healing from sin, which is the root of all other disease. That's the issue. That we would be healed of sin. And to be healed of sin took the blood of Jesus at the cross and how we appropriate that blood is simply we confess. We confess. Yes, Lord, I need You. Yes, Lord, this is true. See, this is praying by faith. I'm trusting You, Lord. I'm trusting that if I confess, You are going to forgive me because You said You would. I'm trusting that if I pray to You, that I am going to be healed according to Your perfect plan for my life. I'm just trusting You. And as we said all through the teaching last Sunday... It's not that I muster faith, it's that I have mustard seed faith that I put in Jesus Christ where all the strength and power of the healing comes from. I'm just going to trust it. I'm not trying to generate up something else, something beyond, something within myself. I just trust Him that He does love us and He has released us from our sins by His blood. So the singer is praising and the the sufferer is praying and the sick is calling the elders in to pray over him and the sinner, the sinner's confessing so that they may be healed and the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I like that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again and the earth, or the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. So in our list, the singer, the sufferer, the sick, and the sinner, add number five, the saint. The saint. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we talked about Elijah midweek. We read through his story in 1 Kings 17 through 19. We didn't get get quite to the end of the story, but we read the, the bulk of it. And I just want to point out two quick things for you this morning. First of all, notice how Elijah prayed. This, this righteous man who prayed so effectively, notice how he prayed. It says he prayed earnestly in verse 17. He prayed earnestly. The translation of this is marvelous. It's prosuke prosuxato. In other words, he prayed praying. That's what the translation says. He prayed praying. How do you pray praying? Well, you keep on praying. 
You pray and you're still praying and you continually pray. It's ongoing prayer. It's persistence in prayer. And Elijah, the reason why I believe Yaakov, or one of the reasons why he pulls this man out of the history of Israel is because we see him praying through his ministry. Praying throughout. And by the way, and we looked at this Wednesday, as he grew in power, and as he grew in the public eye, as a prophet of God, he didn't pray less, he prayed more. The further down the line he went, the more he prayed. We might think opposite. Hey, once you get established, you don't have to pray so much anymore because you already got it, man. Uh Uh-uh. He prayed more and more and more. As you look through the prayers of Elijah... It begins with him praying that the sky would stop the rain. Next thing you know, he prays three times for a son who had died for resurrection. Next thing you know, he's praying seven times to try and bring the rain back. And finally, in 1 Kings 19, we looked at this Wednesday night, he's praying through the whole chapter in conversation with God. It's like this big fat crescendo of prayer through his life that ends with him just talking to God through the whole entire day. He prayed praying. That's effective prayer. That's earnest prayer. Prayer that is a crescendo in our life. The most effective prayer is just continual prayer. Increasing prayer. Yeah, yeah, but but it says the effective prayer of a righteous man. And that's where you lost me. I am so not... Look around the sanctuary this morning. Not many of us are by our accounting. But by God's accounting, you better believe you are a saint. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are a righteous man. You are a righteous woman. But get this, and this is why I think even more so than the the continual prayer of Elijah, that Elijah was a praying man more than that. Yaakov reaches back to one of the most celebrated and powerful prophets in the history of Israel, not because he was such a great man of faith. Not because he was so righteous. Note verse 17, Elijah was a man, he says, with a nature like ours. Which is why he chose Elijah for the example. What do you mean? He's a man with a nature like ours. Homoiopathes. Homoiopathes. Nature like ours. We're not talking about alternative medicine here, you know. Elijah wasn't a naturopath or an acupuncturist. Acupuncturist. He just was a guy with the same kind of nature we have, or literally subjected to the same passions. We might say colloquially, colloquially, (laughs) Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. What were Elijah's passions? Let me tell you, the example of a righteous man given here is of a man who was deeply flawed. And I mean no disrespect by this. But if you read through the life of Elijah, just do a little psychological study. He was a loner. He didn't have the best people skills. I mean mean this literally. Look at how he interacts with people. Like, dude... He was a man who went from great courage to immediate cowardice. 
a man who had bold faith and blatant fear. We see these inconsistencies in him. We see doubts in him. Psychologically speaking, we could diagnose Elijah with chronic depression. Great Elijah. Oh, I could never be like Elijah. Really? I think it's easy to be like Elijah. Here's a prayer of Elijah that we rarely refer to or exalt to emulate. 1 Kings 19 verse 4, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. There's a prayer of Elijah. It's enough. Enough is enough. Kill me now. Elijah who got to the point of being suicidal. Why couldn't it be Elijah? Really? Elijah was so depressed and so completely unaware that God was about to fire up the chariot to bring him home. He's asking God to kill him. What is the point? That Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. But he was powerful, so how's that work? Because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's how that worked. His prayers were so powerful. No, look at the prayers of Elijah. They're simple prayers. They're Godward prayers. Their prayers with that tiny little mustard seed of faith that he had were put in God for the effectiveness. Elijah Elijah wasn't the point of his greatness. Jesus was. Yahweh was. Anointed with the Holy Spirit and so is every saint. So are you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have been anointed with the same Spirit who anointed Elijah. Who empowered Elijah. John said in 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. 1 John 2.27, as for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it was taught you, you abide in Him. Our anointing, by the way, is not just something the Holy Spirit does in us. Our anointing is the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God, followers of Jesus. Colossians 1.26, Paul said the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and generations. He says it's now been manifested to His saints, which is this, ready? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's this anointing of His Spirit that makes my prayers, makes all of our prayers, the prayers of the saints, effective. It's His anointing that makes our prayers work. In fact, when he says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, the word effective is energeo, where we get energy. The, the energized prayers, the dynamic prayers. Hey, the Holy Spirit energizes our prayers, makes them effective. That's his job. It's not your job. Your job is just to pray praying, just to keep praying. Just to put faith in God that He's listening and that He will answer right. Whatever His answer is, it's going to be perfect. So you pray praying. And the Holy Spirit gives the energy and makes them effective. 
Brothers and sisters, so pray. Because you are righteous ones by the blood of Jesus. Pray. And your prayers are as effective as Elijah's. Elijah, who stopped up the sky, fed a family for a season, raised the dead, called down fire from heaven, and then brought back the deluge. My prayers are effective as that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do you want a little more insight into the effectiveness of your prayers? Turn over to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Watch this. Revelation is not a difficult book to find in the Scriptures. Hey, have I told you? We're going to be in Revelation, Lord willing, in September. And we're going to take about 16 years, I think. We're going to go slow. We're going to take our time. We're going to move through that letter. I can't wait to get there. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. That, to me, is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Because we know at all other times, it is not silent in heaven. You see, the cherubim around the throne, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And every time they say that, the 24 elders around the throne, they cast their crowns because the guy's clink, 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 clink is going on. And they're shouting, Holy, holy, holy. And the, the angels and the saints are worshiping this praise, this amazing ongoing process is happening, and then all of a sudden, the Lamb, Jesus, breaks the seventh seal, which we'll explain in a few months here. Silence. Complete and utter silence. Why? I submit to you that heaven went silent because the saints are praying. 1 Peter 3.12 Quoting Psalm 34.15 says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. Well, how do you know it's the saints praying? Look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. This heavenly dynamic is remarkable here. You see, the altar of incense that was in the holy place there in the tabernacle was just an earthly representation of an actual altar of incense in heaven before the Lord. In the tabernacle, the priest would go in and every day they would offer up as they put the incense on the tabernacle and that sweet odor would would rise. He would pray. He would intercede for the people. The altar of incense was the picture of prayer. The Jewish people understood that. Prayer going up. Incense going up to the Lord. A sweet aroma before the Lord. Well, that altar just represented that which was already in heaven, already taking place. I believe every single time we pray, it's being mixed and brought up before the Lord. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. It's as though right then God said, Shush! My people are praying. And for half an hour, everything in heaven goes full stop. And the angel takes the censer and mixes in this holy spiritual incense and mixes it with the prayers of the saints and dips in and throws this out. And what follows? As heaven sits in absolute silence, God focusing on the prayers of the saints, the prayers then boom through the heavens, light up the skies, and shake the entire planet. They even tune up the angels' trumpets. You don't think that's bigger than the prayers of Elijah? He stopped the rain for three and a half years. But the prayers of the saints shake the entire globe. Your prayers are being gathered. There are some prayers we offered that we have completely forgotten about. God's got them. They're there on the altar of incense. There are prayers throughout the ages where saints have prayed and then followed them up by, How long, O Lord? When will you answer me, Lord? How come it's not the way I think it's supposed to be, O Lord? And I think from heaven you could almost hear God say, Keep looking up. Keep looking up. Look at me. Look at me. Peter and John said to the beggar, Look at us. God is saying to you this morning, Look at me. Keep on praying and look at me. And church historian Hendrik Groven once wrote, The distinctive feature of early Christian prayer is the certainty of being heard. I really like that because he doesn't say it's the certainty of being healed. It says the certainty of being heard. Well, I prayed. God didn't hear my prayers because He didn't answer. Oh no, He heard your prayers. He has not yet answered. Or He didn't answer in the way that you expected Him to with your massive eternal knowledge. Right? I've, got, I've got such understanding that I can tell God how this is supposed to go down. Really? Look up. Look up. Look at me. And so the singer praises and the sufferer prays and the sick calls others in to pray for them and the sinner confesses and the saint prays with prayer. But there's one more. One more at the end of this letter. I already talked about it a couple of Wednesdays ago. I wasn't even going to, but I realized something here. That it's all in the context of prayer. Watch this. Back in Yaakov chapter 5, verse 19, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And the sixth person in this context of prayer is the stray. The stray. The stray. Not talking about the lost specifically here. Not talking about the unbeliever. We're talking about the person who has strayed from the will of God. 
By the way, stray doesn't mean they stopped attending church necessarily. But it means they've wandered off in spirit, in heart, in faith, in behavior, in life, the stray. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, and that's where Yaakov gets part of his teaching here. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Or 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Why does he use the word cover, which has to do with atonement, instead of propitiation, which has to do with complete washing? Because we've already had the washing. We're talking about followers of Jesus now. Strays who have been washed in the blood and who his, who are, I believe, still talking about people who are saved eternally. But they're straying and they need to come back under the cover of grace. It covers me. It covers me. It covers me. Maybe this is a weak example, but this morning when I woke up just feeling lousy and trying to get ready you know, to be here, I'm going, all I wanted to do was get back under the covers. And I texted Rachel, hey, stretch out worship. (laughs) And I texted Les, do communion. What I could have just said was, buy me time, you know. And after that first text, I did. I got back in bed and I pulled the covers up. And that was when I first started feeling a little bit better. Grace, it covers us. The word cover is kalupto. And it means to hinder the knowledge of a thing. I love that. Wow. You'll cover a multitude of sin. You'll hinder the knowledge of a thing. We need to learn from that. Listen, it doesn't mean that we get involved in a cover-up. And it has nothing to do with sweeping sin under the carpet. No, you go after the stray. And you, you bring them back. And as they come back... We don't have to talk about all the sins. We don't have to continually hold them before. Remember the last time you strayed? Do we need to bring this up again? We're going to post it out on the church bulletin board. Here are the reasons why so and so strayed. No, no. Love is not concerned with that. Psalm 32, verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And you know what what happens when we confess our own sin to the Lord Jesus, and He forgives us the guilt of it? We have no interest in exposing the sin of others. Love covers So right back to the confession issue. Yeah, but if I confess my sin, everyone's going to know. Why? That's not the purpose. That's why we don't do Sunday morning church and say it's confession time and set up the mic. (laughs) Everyone needs to know or it's not out there or we're not walking in the light. That's not what walking in the light is. Walking in the light is being honest with God. So that then we can walk in fellowship together. And yeah, I do believe when we confess, we ought to confess to one another. Not corporately. But we need to have a brother, a sister, a pastor, a shepherd, someone we go to and say, here's what's going on. Would you pray for me? I need forgiveness. I need to come back. I've been straying. And we confess these things. 
But then the one who receives the confession has no interest whatsoever then in telling everybody about it, but it's like, okay, let's, let's put this to bed. We don't need to know this. We don't need to be thinking about it or spinning it around over and over and over. So listen, Christians, brothers and sisters, when you go after a stray, don't go looking for their sin. Go for them. Go for the person. Well, yeah, but so-and-so did this. It doesn't matter what they did. Just go get them. And love them. And remind them they're in a place where confession is okay. Because where there's confession, there's compassion and there's grace to forgive. Let's go get people and bring them back to righteousness. Like Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You want to shine? It doesn't come of, you know, rat fat. You want to shine like the stars of heaven, go after the stray, because it's not the sin we're exposing, it's the grace we're disclosing. We're bringers of grace. Because, well, because we ourselves have been receivers of grace. So we're just giving what we've already been given ourselves. And in keeping here with the healing intentions of Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals, Yaakov ends his letter, get this, with a call to intercession. It seems like such an abrupt end. We talked about this two Wednesdays ago, like, like suddenly Yaakov just stops. He's just done. Puts down the pen. He doesn't say farewells. He doesn't give any final thoughts. He just ends. And it almost seems out of place. It's like all of a sudden, he's talking about prayer. It's a beautiful section on prayer. And all of a sudden, now he's talking about the stray. Why? Because the stray needs prayer. Because someone who has wandered from faith, the most effective, powerful thing you can do for a brother or sister who's wandered off is intercede for them. Pray for them. I I went to them. I, I talked to them. They won't listen to me. Pray for them. And don't stop praying for them. For the sake of righteousness. So we have the singer praising and the sufferer praying and the sick calling for prayer and the sinner confessing and the saint praying with prayer and the stray who needs intercession. Who needs the prayers of the saints. So where are you? Are you straying? Well, I'm here this morning. I I didn't ask that. Has your heart strayed from the Lord? Are you living a double life? Are you lying to God and your brothers and sisters in Christ because of what's really going on in your personal world that you don't think anyone knows, you don't want anybody to know because you're afraid of men? Let the fear of God draw confession out and bring you back to a place of righteousness. Do you find yourself praying as if you're stuck in a cycle of beggarly indifference? We see them all over Jerusalem. Beggars. Still there today. Still there near the Temple Mount. And it's a sad scene. Heads down. Hands up. And that's what they do all day long. Alms. 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 And Peter and John said, Look at us. Look up. 
why are my hands raised? Well, I might get something. Hey, if your head's down and your hand is up and not out of humility, if you feel like you have no hope for change, why don't you come this morning and confess? Just confess. Bring it to the Lord. Clean that stuff out so that you can have the spiritual dialysis of the blood of Christ. Do you know someone who is lost? I mean, who really is lost, has never committed to Jesus. Do you know somebody of our fellowship who is straying? See, prayer and praise in the last days is about lifting the heads of beggars. Because the coming of the Lord is near. He's going to be here soon. I'm not kidding when I say this. Lord willing, we'll be in the book of Revelation in September. I have always hoped that by the time we ended 3 John, God would just take us home because then I will have taught through all the Bible. That's, that's kind of my goal. And I know the Lord well enough to know He'll probably take us right at the end of 2 John just so I can't finish. <laughs> Keep looking up. Look up, look up, look up. Jesus said when these things begin to take place, and my friends, they are taking place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Amen? Amen. Father, we look up to You this morning. And we pray, Lord Jesus, heal us of our sin. Lord, I pray that as a believer, knowing that You have forgiven my sin. Knowing, convinced, Lord, You have given me salvation. Knowing that now I'm in this place in life where You have now for years been sanctifying me and working on me. And so I I pray in agreement with that, Lord, just asking that You would heal me of all sin. We pray this together. Heal us of the sin in our lives, that stuff that's still stuck and still going on, and still creeps up, and still emerges, those things that we know we do in rebellion to You. Heal us, Lord, of our sin. And give us confidence in the fear of the Lord to confess, so that we can actually, Lord, experience the freedom that comes of getting this stuff off of our chests and out of our hearts. And Father, for the stray this morning, we intercede. For every person in here this morning, there is someone that we know who knows you, but has wandered, has strayed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us to his own way. Oh, but you, Lord Jesus, are the Good Shepherd. And so we pray prayers of intercession. We stand in the gap for those who are straying. And Father, for those who are lost this morning, asking that the divine healing that we know is so available to each of us will be poured out in this world. That grace would be discovered as the lost are found and the strays are brought home. And Lord, we bless Your name. Would you work among us even now, this morning, in this place? Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. As always, if you need prayer...
I invite you to come to any one of the four tables and, and be prayed for. And as always, if you want to be born again, haven't yet done that, give your life to Jesus. I invite you to come and pray for that. But, but this morning, listen, the call of invitation goes out for intercession. And so I put this out to you all. If there's someone you need to pray for, someone who's suffering or sick or sinning or straying, would you please come and pray for them this morning? And let's use the next few minutes as a time of ministry where we can be praying not necessarily for ourselves, but for those who are lost or straying or sick. Won't you come? Let's stand and sing together.